Welcome to the public morality. If the axiom is correct, a picture is worth a thousand words. Author, journalist, historian, and guest host of the public morality, Todd Brewster, has provided us with a smorgasbord of vocabulary delights in his latest book, American Childhood, A Photographic History. Todd Brewster, welcome once again to the public morality. Oh, thank you, Byron. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, I'm going to begin. Just congratulations on another exquisite and thought-provoking exercise. Um, sh share how you came to this particular project, if you would. Well, uh, to be honest, it was the recommendation of an editor at a, at a different publishing house than the one that eventually published this book. Um, uh, uh, the, this editor approached me and said, hey, would you be willing to do a book on, on sort of history as seen through the eyes of children? And I thought, oh, I don't know if it's really me. I'm not sure I'm the right person. I'm not sure I want to do this. And she said, will you, will you look into it? Just kind of, you know, just think about it for a little bit. And I did. And I came up with an idea of how to do it, you know, by going into this rich trove of photography that's out there in the archives and a lot of it just getting digitized now finally so there's new material emerging every day at the library Chris, at the new york public library and so i started assembling just a like a tumblr file a tumblr account of of uh, a site of uh of photographs as i got them and i found them really intriguing um and then i began reading about childhood in america and got acquainted with just how important we have uh, the importance that we have put towards children as a nation and 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 i then just got sort of caught up in it um uh, i was a it was an idea that sort of captured me and i worked on it for years really and i would i'd find myself at flea markets going through pictures that were in baskets that people you know had were selling for a nickel a piece and and looking on the walls of, of friends uh, uh as i would visit them you know seeing photographs that they had and then and then reading this amazing uh, collection of literature about childhood in America that really led me to a, a, a pretty, I think, dynamic thesis. Hmm. Now, I've heard you say in other interviews that America invented childhood. What, what does that mean? Well, it, I know it sounds a little startling. How could you invent childhood? Didn't God invent childhood? Didn't nature invent childhood? It's kind of a provocative notion. But by that, I mean the idea that childhood is a separate sphere of life that needs to be sort of cordoned off from the rest of the world experience, from adult experience. Up until the time of the Enlightenment, children were treated as if they were adults in waiting. I mean, there was no special uh, attachment to children as a separate sphere of life. There, were no, there was no children's literature. There was no children's clothing or merchandise. Of course, we're going back into the 1600s when we talk about this but the but the idea that that children were uh um uh, uh, developing into individual selves the sort of prize uh of the enlightenment the notion that that um, we were not just subjects to a, a a king or a tyrant we were we were people in our own right every single one of us and that we had a destiny to fulfill that was very much an idea of the enlightenment and America was the first great enlightenment experiment in government. So when you when you when you look at the combination of those two ideas, the enlightenment respect for the individual and the growth of the individual into a destiny that they were that they were uh, determined to perform in the world. And then you look at America as the first place to sort of try out that experiment in, in, in individuality. Uh, you you see the conjunction of of this idea and the notion that Americans kind of invented childhood. That's the first idea. The second part of it is that we we did treat childhood as a separate sphere of life, not only in our early notions of enlightenment thinking, but going forward by the late nineteenth century, we had developed a kind of child's mark within literature and in and in clothing and 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 in dress we had uh, uh, begun to to see school schools as not just teaching uh, uh reading writing and arithmetic but expanding the child's imagination and by the time we get to the 20th century we've extended that to compulsory education and and in the arrival of the high school and the notion of a teenage uh, section of that childhood development period 
Then we have the burgeoning of this amazing popular culture that's really driven by childhood experiences and childhood innovations and childhood um, uh, uh, inspirations. And so I began looking at all this and discovered that really so much of what is great about America, you know, our business innovation, our merchandising, our, our popular culture, our, our, our um, uh, great cultural um, uh, uh, movements have been inventions. All these have been driven often by childhood inspirations, things that happen to occur to the childhood imagination that led to to great achievements. So I, I looked at that as, wow, that's, an, that's kind of an amazing conjunction of things, the enlightenment notion of, of childhood, and then the development of, of childhood as a, a separate culture and the driving force of American life. You know, wow. You're known by many for your treatment of American history. As I've got to know you, I guess more importantly, become familiar with your work. I would say that Todd was primarily interested in who we are and how the past influences the present. And this text, in my view, seemed to be in line with that thinking. Your thoughts? Yes. Um, well, I mean, I think one of the things we have to think about here as we arrive in the 21st century, and there's certainly a lot of a lot of people approaching this idea is what what has happened to childhood in our own time? And um, I I I you know about 25 or 30 years ago, there was a philosopher who named Neil Postman who wrote a book called The Disappearance of Childhood, and he posited this very interesting idea, which he attached somewhat to the arrival of of, of the or the the ongoing uh, intrusive nature of technology. Uh, he attached this idea that Americans, uh, uh, in their embrace of technology, but really in, in all sort of developed cultures, had uh, abandoned the notion of that I described a minute ago of a separate sphere of life, when children are protected from adult worries and adult concerns, and the adult world that there's that you you grow and develop into an adult that you don't arrive in the world as in, cons consistent with and aware of um, a, 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 the adult world. Um, and, and so he'd refer to that as the disappearance of childhood. And he had a very interesting phrase. He said, we've childified adulthood and adultified childhood. And that there are no spheres that are now, are now are, there, there's nothing that's not available to children. He, he wrote this really towards the end of the 20th century. So it was, it, the internet had not really taken full uh, hold yet. And yet you look at that and you realize, wow, what he was onto, we've realized even more dynamically since then. And, and so looking back at American history and seeing how we value childhood for so much of, the, of our past and seeing now that we have allowed the adult world and adult problems to intrude into our, our children's world and maybe adultified children in that sense, um, maybe we're, we're abandoning one of the great sources of our greatness. So the impact of that history on us leads me to think that we need to have that kind of conversation. Now, it's not only the internet, of course, it's also social media. It's also the arrival of, of a whole wave of problems that have intruded into children's lives. I mean, I live only about 15 miles from Sandy Hook, uh, Connecticut, where um, we had that terrible um, uh, shooting uh, in, in the elementary school back in 2012 that still has had its traumatic reach across this particular community. And it, we're not alone. I mean, you know, there's Uvalde, Texas. There, there's there's, there's um, uh, school shootings everywhere, and, and teachers are now put to the task. I mean, in, in addition to teaching, reading, writing, arithmetic, and a whole broader collection of subjects, to, to arranging for um, uh, uh, active shooter drills, which, of course, penetrate into the child's mind and, and I think, chill the imagination in a way that we may regret so deeply going forward. Yeah, I want to talk about just some of the photos in particular, some of just the array of photos that, that are featured in this text. Um, you, you know, you, there's, there, there are just some photos throughout the American narrative where they're just children playing. And, 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 and those are, I guess, recognized on, on various levels. We recognize that children playing, we recognize that. Um, but then there's one with 
children in Fidel Castro beards surrounded by Castro. This is another one with um, children in Oakland and the black and, and and the Black Panthers. Talk talk about some of those, um, for lack of a better word, more provocative photos that that you were uh, that you unearthed and how how they come to be part of this project. Yeah. So this this is uh, this is a book that is driven by the, the pictures that I found. There are over 200 of them, uh, and they're selected very carefully to do a very subjective history of childhood in America. But one of the things that I wanted to avoid because of its lack of honesty was uh, I didn't want to just do uh, the, the kind of boilerplate images of children, um, you know, uh, being cute. Uh, I mean, children are cute. We all know that. But, but um, portraying childhood is cute. Uh, to me, didn't get at the root element of childhood that is so interesting and kind of provocative and what has really driven this kind of focus on childhood that I, I, I mentioned in, in, in the first comments today. Um, uh, children, have ex children experience American history. They experience it differently than adults do, but they do experience it. And, and so, yeah, there are photographs in the book of um, a, a school in Oakland, California that was run by the Black Panther organization back in the 1970s um, that uh, really wanted to, to um, uh, separate education away from the public schools, which they considered to be corrupt and a corrupt example of a American capitalistic um, uh, 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 principles. Um, so you have these children standing uh, in, wearing black berets and, and um, uh, in a really regimented fashion that were part of the Black Panther uh, um, movement back in the 1970s. Um, you have um, uh, pictures of, um, as, I, as you mentioned, of a number of children together with uh, Fidel Castro. Fidel Castro very famously came to speak at the UN um, and stayed in Harlem in order to make it demonstrate that his, uh, his um, solidarity with uh, the... the, uh, the um, um, black community and with uh, the, the poor and disadvantaged in the country. Um, ironically, um, at the same time that was happening, as Fidel's own son, Fidelito, was uh, at, in school in Queens secretly because he wanted him to get a private school education, um, I'm sorry, American education. Uh, and um, so Castro invited some of the children who were with him, even though they themselves didn't know that they were that they were uh, uh, going to school with Fidel Castro's son uh, to come and have a picture taken together. And they decided to wear uh, beards and, and military hats similar to what Castro would wear. So it's a very interesting and kind of, uh, you know, sort of a curious uh, a photograph. Um, uh, throughout the book, there are, there are pictures of, of children who are clearly suffering. There are children who are clearly um, uh, experiencing injustices, um, uh, children who are flaunting injustice. Uh, and the example you referred to about children in blackface um, goes back to the 1930s and a photograph that was taken uh, on a, on a, um, at a school that was, um, uh, would have regularly different sort of cultural days in which they would have children dress up as various ethnic groups uh, in order to quote unquote experience what it was like to be a member of that ethnic group, and so they would dress up as as uh, Native Americans, and in this, this case, they were dressing up in blackface to sing a spiritual. Um, the children, of course, didn't know the history of blackface in America. Uh, they didn't know that that um, it was used to ridicule uh, the African American, and they didn't know that this was all part of a of a of a, a great injustice. Uh, but here they are um, being dressed up by the adults to appear in blackface. Um, it just another example of the way that the adult world was intruding on the on the child's world. Well, you know, you, I'm I'm glad you 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 referenced that final one about the children in blackface, and and they were innocent; they didn't know the ramifications of what they were doing. But at the same time, in a very curious way, I mean, those photographs were also a product of the New Deal contribution in in that. They were underwriting artists in various formats, whether it's photography, writing, plays, murals, what have you, to capture American life. So it still 
curiously part of, of the New Deal project to even watch these photos that we in that 21st century lens might find deplorable. Yes. Um, so for your listeners who don't know this story, so the during the time of the Great Depression and the New Deal, uh, the Farm Security Administration, part of the federal government, commissioned writers, playwrights, photographers to do, do work. I mean, remember, these are, these are artists who were primarily out of work at the time, but the, the, it was not only to provide work to them, it was also to do something that had been impossible to do up until uh, the 1930s, late 20s, early 30s, when uh, a film became, uh, higher speed film became available, was to actually go out and document the world uh, in which we were living and to document, in this case, the story of the Great Depression. And it was one of the first great movements of photojournalism, even though it was uh, under the aegis of the Farm Security Administration, in that it captured life as it was being lived. And um, they captured uh, the, the pain and suffering of the Great Depression. There are pictures in the book from uh, you know, the farmlands where there was in the Dust Bowl and where there was just great suffering through the and, and um, a great poverty throughout the Great Depression. And, and it captured um, also some of the racism that was happening in the country and it was captured some of the um, injustice in the workplace that was happening. And so it was it was and the photographers, by the way, that were employed are some of the greatest photographers in American history, Marion Post Walcott. Uh, Arthur Rothstein. Uh, these are these are great photographers whose work uh, you can uh, your listeners can, can can look up on the internet and see the great contributions. And in many cases, um, you'll discover photographs that they know because they're so famous. Um, uh, the the migrant mother is a very famous photograph that, that will be familiar to a lot of your your listeners, when they look that picture up, if they just pipe in like migrant mother into Google, they'll see. That was a shot done for the for the Farm Security Administration in, in this project to employ photographers and document life in America in the 1930s. Hmm. You know, Todd, when, when, when I'm writing a book, uh, I obviously think there's something there. What would be the point of writing it? And that, that's sort of the first level. And, and then for me, there's the second level. Invariably, there's a moment in that second level whether doing the research or writing or self-reflection where it sort of crystallizes and it becomes what I call this eureka moment. Did you experience something like that when you were working on this project? When I know you began by saying you were sort of tepid to the idea initially. Yeah, I mean, um, and, and that's very well stated, Byron, about the process. I always talk to uh, young writers and tell them that uh, you got to go in the woods, you got to get lost, and then you'll find you got and you got to find your way out. And no matter how much experience you have in writing, no matter how experience you have as as a um, as a journalist, for instance, um, you will find yourself. You should find yourself lost for a while. And whatever preconceptions you have about what the story is and what the book is, you will find them changing organically as you as you go through this writing process. And for me, the first one was, of course, what I described a minute ago, which is that I thought that what this editor wanted was a book. And I, she did actually wanted a book of, of sort of child, pictures of children um, in historical contexts. Uh, and that was, you know, one kind of book. Um, and it certainly would have been a book that, that um, would have been very interesting to look at or could have been very interesting to look at. I didn't realize that there was this bigger, bigger theme that emerged um, in, 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 in uh, American history about the role of childhood and how we're, we are a kind of child-centered culture and almost always have been. So that was my first uh, eureka moment. My, my second one came when I realized that, you know, even though I wanted to go out and do a, a book about history through the eyes of children, that I was incapable, anyone would be incapable of of actually capturing that because, um, first of all, if it was going to be done largely through photography, the photographs would have been done by adults, not children. I mean, I did look at photographs that have been done by children and they tended to not uh, be very revealing. Um, I also looked at a lot of artifacts, you know, artwork, drawings, uh, writings. Um, you'll find, for instance, in the book, very interesting elements that did emerge from that graffiti that was done by children in textbooks in the 19th century that 
mocked uh, Jefferson Davis, for instance, or that um, that uh, uh, questioned um, uh, uh, religious uh, dogma. Um, uh, and then there's there's also in the book uh, a photograph of of uh, Ernest Hemingway at the age of twelve uh, writing one of his first stories, and even um, uh, a, a scrapbook that includes. Um, uh, some of the pages of that story that he was working on. So there's some element of that, but I but I realized that um, you know there is this tremendous gap between uh, a childhood and an adulthood. And and there, you know, there's a, a wonderful quote that's included in the book from Randall Gerald that says that one of the most uh, disturbing things for children as they look as adults is that they understand that adults have no idea what it's like to be a child, and that's absolutely true. It's like we left some kind of Edenic place and that we're always looking back to try to recapture some element of of that childhood that we were where we really lived in a different sphere. And, and and that's part of what happens with the inspirations that we have in childhood, that we we want to recapture them in, in our in our adult. We want to relive that experience, that one sense of wonder and awe and that sense of 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 the world being our oyster, you know, um, we don't want to be thinking about um, mortgages and and um, the grocery bill. Um, we 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 seek to go back to that place where that specialness happened, and it often is is so elusive that we spend the rest of our lives looking for it. Um, there's a wonderful quote that actually uh, I heard and wrote, and it's been quoted many many places, um, and I use it in the introduction. Is that uh, when I was interviewing Bart Giamatti, who was the commissioner of baseball back in the 1990s, um, he said to me, um, talking about baseball, what genius was it who decided to to call what was fourth base home plate? Who realized that home is where we wish, where we start from, and where we wish to return? And I thought that was such an amazingly poetic way of describing not only baseball, which is my favorite sport, um, but also life that we leave home and we seek in many ways to return to it we go out into the world we experience the danger of life and we try to make our way from first base to second base to third base and arrive home safely um and 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 uh, i think that was another eureka moment for me was to realize that that was what right doing a book about childhood would be about it would be about that specialness that we seek to recapture uh you know, I, I was when you're talking about the Bart Giamatti quote, I was thinking about um, George Carlin does a routine juxtaposing baseball with football. And that's sort of that was sort of his um, his punchline there. And also, you know, Ty, just put this in your head. We do an annual baseball before the season opens um, show. So we're going to have to have you back to talk baseball because it's my favorite oh. sport, too. So we'll have to have, we'll have, to have you back. Just to talk, just, just... It's going to be a very <laughs> long show because I could talk for hours. So can I. So we'll we'll, we'll do a couple parts. Okay. You know, as a, as a writer, ultimately you're constrained by words, other arts, however defined painting, sculpture, music can go beyond the written text because the collaborators as, as the way those mediums impact us as individuals. In addition to your words, uh, talk about the role the photography plays in assisting us to complete this story for ourselves. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I think your readers will find if they pick up the book, American Childhood, they'll discover that it's not just a collection of photographs, that the photographs that I chose, well, let me back up for a minute. When I brought when I met, I, you know, I wrote the book Lincoln's Gamble uh, a few years ago, and the publisher was Scribner, and then the the editor at Scribner and I were having a celebratory lunch afterwards, and I had already sort of started thinking about this idea, and I described it to him, and he immediately said he wanted to uh, to have it published by Scribner, which is the publisher who eventually published this book, um, and. Uh, Yet throughout our work together, he kept on asking me, well, how are you going to organize all this, all these photographs, aren't you? And, and, I, and I realized that he was thinking about the book in a very uh, illustrative way, that photographs would be 
illustrating a text. And, you know, that's traditionally how you see photographs in books is that they, you know, there's a reference to the Lusitania and then there's a picture to the left of the Lusitania. There's a reference to the, you know, March on Washington. There's a picture of Martin Luther King and the March on Washington. Uh, I didn't want to do that. I wanted the pictures to uh, uh, have been there for their reasons of their of their own, not just illustrating the text. And uh, it took him a while to, to understand what I was thinking of, and 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 another element took him a while to understand too. He he said, "Aren't we going to do this chronologically?" And I said, "No, I don't think we should do it chronologically. We should do it kind of haphazardly. We should do it." Um, uh, the way that, that a scrapbook might work. And we should actually look to have the photographs interact with each other in a way. You know, have subtle sorts of, of um, resonance with each other. One photograph on one page, on the right-hand page, another on the left-hand page, creating a kind of resonance that has a, an extra level of meaning. And um, uh, over time, he began to warm up to this idea and that's how the book is constructed so that there are photographs of of um of uh, uh there's a photo an archival photograph of a couple of girls in louisiana twins dressed up in a very um sort of uh, frilly uh, um outfits with parasols over their heads that they're holding um very sort of feminine uh privileged kind of uh photograph of of a life lived in the south um uh and represented and will, will resonate to readers of that that life to on the opposite page is a boy in the bronx from the 1970s and um a f- sort of a portrait of him in in his in his uh on the street and he is giving the finger to the photographer um so what is the resonance that's created? Well, you have this sort of privileged life. You've got this less privileged life. You have a, a kind of uh, presentational element to the two girls from the South in, the, in their frilly outfits. And then you have a very uh, non-presentational, in fact, a disruptive I- uh, image from this boy in the Bronx. It speaks to the the clash of, of culture, the clash of black and white. It speaks to the clash of poverty and privilege. Um, uh, there are, are, are other photographs. There's a photograph of, um, uh, of uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt uh, uh, Jr. Um, on a, um, uh, uh, that is the, uh, uh, um, the, the child of, um, of Teddy Roosevelt, the, the president, on a, uh, sitting on an elephant at a circus. Um, and delighting in that. Um, and then on the opposite page, there's a photograph of children in the early 2000s visiting a, 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 a circus museum where everything is in miniature. Uh, the clash here of the real experience, right? And the sort of more virtual experience that we have in our own time, that we've gotten away from this notion of, of this sort of uh, tactile relationship that, that childhood would have had back in the in, in in other days and now we experience it through screens or through um, mo- uh, 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 modifications that change our whole element a sense of what it is it reminds me of of um, you know uh, when, when I said kids was young a, a friend of ours gave them for their birthday uh, a a snowman construction kit where <laughs> everything was already pre-done instead of you know the traditional method of you just run in and grab a carrot out of the, you know, out of the, uh, out of the refrigerator and stick it in for a nose and you find a couple of rocks, you know, what all that, which are much more indicative of a child's imagination. Child doesn't want something that's pre-constructed and, 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 and um, sanitized uh, to be able to, to um, experience the world around them. So the pictures resonate with each other. They have a, a relationship to each other and often that relationship is visual it's just may just be that the pictures look really amazing next to each other or they may be that they 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 have a more contextual relationship as the ones i just described um and the the reader gets both then a kind of uh, uh, a literal understanding of childhood through the text but also a kind of uh, subliminal understanding of childhood through the relationships of visual media and, and and I would 
add, uh, and again, this was so, this was my takeaway. That there's also, and I mean it's in the most positive sense, a subversive element to your project. I'm, I'm thinking specifically about a photo that you have, the juxtaposition that you talk about. There's one of a very young, I think, four-year-old Sammy Davis Jr. Then there's another one next to it of an, an, an adult Sammy Davis Jr. holding his son who's close in age to the, the photo adjacent. I It struck me because... Because I didn't recall seeing any photos where Sammy Davis Jr. was not on, as as in Sammy Davis Jr. the performer, but here he's yeah. just a dad. So it becomes this sort of subversive way to get us to maybe even look through a different lens that we have not been accustomed to. Your thoughts? You're a very astute uh, reader. Um, there are all kinds of little things here that um, that are. Uh, uh, that will it will it will they're like little puzzles if you can figure them out. So yeah, Sammy Davis Jr. was put on the stage at the age of five. I mean, he never was not on, right? He was never not performing. And those of the, your listeners who remember Sammy Davis Jr. will 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 know that from the way that he was, um, even when he would appear on the Tonight Show or something. There was always this element that Sammy Davis Jr. was performing. And yes, there's this photograph, which is a very candid, wonderfully intimate photograph of him with his son. Um, uh, a very, very um, uh, loving uh, picture of him uh, as a father. And I, I, I posted this somewhere a few days ago in, in anticipation of Father's Day that, you know, the relationship between father and son that's so, so delicious in this photograph was really so um, impressive uh, to me. There's another, I'll I mean, another we, we example could... of a subversive one. Sure, go ahead. Okay, so um, uh, later in the book, there's there are two photographs together. One is an active shooter drill, as I described before. These girls are all collected in 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 in, in huddling uh, in 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 secret to avoid the active shooter. On the opposite page, there is a photograph of. Uh, in a preemie ward, a, you know, premature children in a Los Angeles hospital um, with the children that have been born premature, all in incubators. And on the back uh, behind them, you see this bulletin board of all the photographs that that of children who had survived in the preemie ward and become um, uh, young infants. Um, and so you have the sec sense of, of the fragility of life on the one side which is um uh, the the early early very um uh, challenging days of these young infants born premature and opposite the fragility of life in a different sense in a, in that in one that which we have unfortunately created the the danger in the um uh, uh prevalence of, of guns in america and the the um uh, uh mass shootings that have happened so with such uh, rapidity in the past few years hmm. but because the photographs are a primary source informing us about that particular moment i want to talk about um blind tom who by all accounts was a musical prodigy but the atlantic monthly which was founded in part because of his abolitionist position described him as stupid flabby sleepy and with the vacant grin of idiocy stamped on his face, um, he was treated more like a dog than a human being. Talk about that, if you will, because it seems to be, you know, when I read in that, was there's a gap between, in this case, the 19th century, being opposed to slavery as, uh, as opposed to being for equality. And there seemed to be a gap in, 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 that, in that statement. Your thoughts? Yeah, uh, well, and you and I discussed this, I think, at length in, in, in discussing Lincoln's Gamble a few years ago, that uh, being opposed to slavery did not mean that you did not still consider the uh, African-American race to be inferior. Um, uh, in fact, it, would, it was unusual to, to embrace equality in any form, and certainly Lincoln didn't in his life embrace equality. So um, it, it's important that your listeners understand that that distinction that that um 
and, and I think it arrives into her own time. It's just um, astonishing and sad what we've witnessed over the past few years in such depth. Um, but Blind Tom was, um, was a musical prodigy. Um, and um, unlike um, uh, our own time when we might be more likely to look upon musical prodigies with a certain sense of awe, uh, uh, Blind Tom was looked upon as something of a freak um, and, uh, and, and, and not as someone who, by the way, uh, could achieve his greatness. It was as if the, the great talents that he had were, um, were accidents um, and therefore uh, not something to be respected, just something to be looked upon more as a uh, freak of nature. Um, even as that all that was happening, uh, since he was born in the South and his master, slave master, um, looked upon him as a vehicle for uh, perhaps monetary gain, um, he, he was sent on tour, never to any of the free states, uh, uh, to perform his, his, his great musical skills uh, and all the money that was earned went to the pocket of his slave master. Um, so it was... It was, uh, he, he's both an example of, of incredible um, skill and achievement uh, and inspiration and an example of American racism, uh, as well as um, a, a sense of uh, um, lack of appreciation for the, for the joys of childhood. And, and through the lens of, of, of the 19th century antebellum slavery period, because of his physical challenges, his musical skills were really his only real worth to the master because he could not work in a traditional way. Exactly. I mean, it's it's kind of astonishing to think that the, the master discovers his musical talent and realizes that, okay, he can't, you know, he can't do the slave labor, but uh, he can earn me money in other ways. Um, uh uh, so it's, it's, it's both, you're impressed by Blind Tom, and of course he also became this, you know, subject of, of great curiosity, um, uh, but you also are, there is a, a melancholy to the book, as people, my brother mentioned to me in his first reading, there's a melancholy to it, which is that you have stories like the story of Blind Tom in which, yes, you're impressed by his enormous musical talent, and by the way, in amazing composer whose works uh, have been discovered in our own time are being performed by the great the great pianist jeremy danks per performs um uh blind tom's compositions uh to great acclaim um and yet he was uh, buried uh, without even a recognition of his achievements so yeah it, there, there's something there's a lot of sadness in the book and a lot of joy in the book at the same time Sadness, joy, um, might we also posit irony, um, which brings us to the story and the photos of Annie Brown. Who is she and, and why is, is she part of an, an ironic paradigm in your book? Yeah. Um, uh, so we all know the story of John Brown and, and, and the um, uh, inciting of the insurrection at Harper's Ferry and, and, his, and the um, consequences for him that he was hanged. Um, Annie Brown was, was John Brown's daughter, um, and she was, um, as, as her father, as committed to uh, ending slavery. Um, and at the, as a teenager, a 16-year-old teenager, she and her uh, sister went down to uh, the South to, um, uh, to um, teach uh, the, the children of contraband um, uh, being the the term for those who were had been freed by uh, the invading Union Army, and um, uh, after the war, she continued this schooling, and um, in a building that was constructed as the school, uh, and it had been formerly the home of the judge who pronounced the verdict on her father of hanging. So, great irony here. And, a, and and one that has some some sense of justice to it 
that Annie Brown, um, daughter of John Brown, um, we all know that the words, um, name of John Brown was on the lips of many Union soldiers as they um, uh, uh, fought against the Confederacy. Um, that she, there she is as a child, teenager, uh, ministering um, and educating uh, the uh, black youth that had been freed by the Union. And I don't want people to think this is just a, a dire exercise to make you feel uh, everyone feel bad about themselves. Um, there are also some wonderful light um, photos. And one of my favorites was a four-year-old photograph of Truman Capote. If you showed me that picture saying this person will grow up to be an acclaimed writer, who is it? Without hesitation, I would say, well, that's Truman Capote. And I felt the same way when I saw the picture of young Buster Keaton, which in some respects may be frightening. Did any photos grab you like that? Oh, yes. I mean, um, I, mean I, I I hope your, your listeners come away understanding that this is a celebration of childhood. And it is a plea in some ways through the, uh, the, the, those tragic elements to it of restoring some sense of the fragility and the, the, the protection of youth in, in our world. Um, uh, there are lots of photographs of, of both young um, people who you can see. I mean, there's Mark Twain there in here at the age of 15. Now you can see, um, that is when he was known as Samuel Clemens, you can, you can see the spirit of youth. Uh, there's young Stephen King here, um, and a long passage in the text about Stephen King's uh, childhood inspirations that we led him to be the Stephen King we know, the novelist of, of such amazing uh, stories. Um, uh, there's also photographs of, of, of children um, uh, that are just so endearing and beautiful um, that, that we'll, you'll marvel at them. I mean, I, and also the child's uh, kind of quirky, uh, playful imagination. There's a wonderful photograph of, of um, children who were walking across a, a street in Minneapolis. And um, the street looks remarkably like that on the back of the album of Abbey Road. Uh, you all, your listeners who are Beatles fans will be familiar with the four Beatles walking uh, in, a, in a very commonly uh, um, uh, referenced uh, a parade across the, the street uh, in Abbey Road. Um, and um, uh, the, the children um, mimic that. Uh, they had just been watching the Beatles documentary. Uh, this is actually just a few years ago, even I think the beginning of COVID. And they went out and um, and mimicked it. And the photographer, Julie Blackman, um, took this photograph that's really quite charming and wonderful. Also, you know, there are a lot of collectors of vernacular photography. That's a term used for people collect photographs like I was from flea markets and antique shops and, and just pictures that you find, you know, in surprising places um, and discovering these gems. And there's one of this couple that is actually the last photograph of the book that is the, the adult couple is kissing and in quite great reverie. And as they, as they're kissing behind them, they see their, they're like one year old who was running away from them and they're completely oblivious to it. Um, just a statement in some ways on the independence of youth, the independence of childhood. The book is a celebration, the cover is a photograph of, of, um, uh, of uh, what are known as the Prince Street Girls, this photographer, Susan B. Salas, who was a wonderful photographer and lived in Soho and, at the time, and she um, befriended these young uh, girls um, who were in um, Little Italy, which is the next neighborhood over. And uh, uh, they they were playing in the street, sort of freely, you know, um, uh, running around at all times when she was when Susan was was uh, got to know them, and she took these these amazing collection of photographs called the Prince Street Girls that are that are pictures of of, of these yeah probably middle school age girls who are just uh, uh, doing what middle school kids do a little bit of sass, a little bit of irreverence, and uh, an enormous amount of innocence. Um, in the few minutes we have left, Todd, Todd, just talk about, give the listeners an idea of how a photo made the cut. Because you have, what, 200 photos in the book, and I'm sure you looked at thousands. So how does a, how did a photo make the cut? Well, in the construction of any book, of, any book, of course, you're looking for a narrative line, and you're looking for 
uh, a diversity of of images, and um, I, uh, I I I would. Uh, and you know, you're also looking for the juxtapositions, as I mentioned before, one photograph against another. I, you know, I, I was looking for f- photographs that had a that had sort of a lasting quality to it, where I looked at them and I couldn't look away. You know, there was something about it that just grabbed me. Um, and I, that I found I would kind of came back to over and over again. I kept my own Tumblr file. Then I would go in the Tumblr file and look at the archive there that I assembled and just see what photographs I, I wanted to choose. And some, of course, you don't want to have the, a repetitive element. So you don't want too many photographs from the 19th century, photographs from the 20th century, I mean, from the 21st, you want to have a balance, you want to have a balance of American experience, you want to have a, a, a sense of, of um, that you've really conveyed some elements of childhood. Um, you also want it to, to demonstrate some, some of this sense of, um, there's something to me very delicious about seeing, as you mentioned before, about Truman Capote's childhood photograph, about seeing a, a famous person as a child and recognizing them often first as a child before you recognize them as a famous person. And, and, and there's one of Lady Gaga in here, for instance, that is, uh, you know, she's, I, I believe, four years old and she's standing in front of the, the family fireplace um, and in, in a very childish sort of wonderful image. Uh, you have no idea that she's going to go on to become this famous performer but you look at it, there's something very striking about her. This very sort of, you know, that she's like, you know, irresistible. If you were in the room at the moment, you would just wear eyes and go right to her. So photographs, I, I went by my gut, Byron. I mean, you know, I was really, I've looked at a lot of images. I'm a big fan of photography. I, I, I love taking pictures. Other ones I take are not, uh, none of them would be in the book because I'm not by any means capable of, of uh, producing something with that level of eye. Um, but there are actually two photographs that relate to my own personal history. I don't know if you came across them as you were looking at it, but the photograph of my my mother when in a, in a classroom in um, the 1930s in, um, in uh, Brooklyn. And there's a photograph of my father, my brother and me at a Hudson River uh, crossing with a ferry. Um, and I'm a little baby, and my my brother is standing um, next to my father, and it's a very quintessential sort of 1950s, late 1950s photograph that will. Uh, and it's already people come up to me and said, "Oh, I, I have my my family has a picture like that." So, um, yeah, it, it it's it's hard to put in one phrase what what method I used to choose the photographs, but uh, it was really everyone was an editorial decision. All right. Since since you are familiar with the public morality, you're no stranger here. You know how this show works. Um, you know, I can't. Um, there was one slight I just can't let go. And I, ha- I have to raise it with you, um, Todd, because we broadcast from Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, I'm morally obligated to offer an addendum to this wonderful book, which I wholeheartedly encourage all to pick up. Um, it's, but it involves one of your captions. I have one Alfred Addendum to one of your captions. Um, you wrote the picture of children of John and Martha Thornberry taken near the first battle of Bull Run. Those of us below the Mason Dixon line know that it was probably your intention to offer that was the first battle at Manassas, and it was only due to northern bias prohibiting you from citing it correctly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guilty as charged. <laughs> guilty as charged. That photograph is really peculiar. I, you know, I showed that picture. There's a wonder. You probably know this fellow, Je- uh, Jeffrey Ward. He does all the books with uh, Ken Burns. Yeah. Ken Burns. Jeffrey Ward yeah. is a friend of mine. Actually, was one of the first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 Jeffrey Ward uh, is a student of of the Civil War. Has written, you know, you know, he wrote the great, you know, volume associated with Ken Burns' Civil War documentary series and and so i i found the picture really peculiar because there's the um you know the the union soldiers are 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 clearly 
posing across the river there and with their sabers out and you can see that they're rattling them a little bit because they're those are blurred in the photograph and then the children are dressed up in sort of rebel um like um garb and um as i mentioned before you know there was not really a market for children's clothing children's um fashion children's merchandise uh in the middle of the 19th century so but somehow they have child-sized uh rebel uniforms that they're wearing and um it felt a little like that picture must have been posed it happened i think if you look at the caption it happened after the battle so it was like it was um it was uh when the union army was in uh was uh uh in control of the area um and i suspect that it was a picture that was staged uh, at the time which is very very interesting but you're right. So, I did name it with my Norman bias. <laughs> bull run is not a term that would be recognized down here. I'm just, just, just saying. Uh, <laughs> the book "American Childhood: A Photographic History." My guest has been this author and friend to the public morality, Todd Brewster. Todd, once again, it has truly been an honor to have you on the public morality, sir. It is my honor, Byron. I, I love coming on your good friend and you're a great author in your own right and i and i i appreciate the time you've given to me this morning the public morality welcomes your comments you can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org that's byron b-y-r-o-n at publicmorality.org you can follow me on facebook as well as twitter the archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the public rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The public rally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.